My guest this week on the Ham and High podcast is Bibi Khan, who's president of the London Islamic Cultural Society, known as Whiteman Road Mosque. It was really great to talk to Bibi, and we discussed the history of the mosque and the challenges the last year has brought. So, Bibi Khan, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. That's great. I'm really, really encouraged and happy to join you. Thank you. Do you want to tell us a bit about what the society is for, what it does? So, so um, a very long, long time ago, since my parents came to England in the 50s, um, they brought with them religion, customs, habits and cultures. Um, we came from what is now uh, Guyana. It was British Guyana at that time in South America. And back home in our homeland, um, it was very, very much a mixture of people that formed a community. So it was Muslims, Christians, Hindus, everyone you called auntie or uncle. And I guess he brought that to the UK as well. So you never lost that that sort of, I think people refer to it as a melting pot sometimes, but um, that's because you look to each other for total support and it continued here in England. So the society kind of formed out of what the relationships were already there? Yes, I would say that what brought the organisation together was because we came from a country that we spoke only English we didn't have any other language. And so there was nowhere for us to actually go. We didn't speak any of the Indian languages. We didn't mix with any others. And, 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 that, and then women were very much involved in our organization. So, or the group, if you like. When we first came to, when my parents first came to England, they bonded because of the country they came from. Mm. Um, and Islam, happened to be that religion that we followed, but our relatives or other people we were, who were from the same country and traveled to England were from different faiths. Um, and so, so when, when my father, his name is Abdul Ali, um, he passed away, it will be four years this year, but he was the, the person who saw a vision, if you like, and that vision, was realized by the establishing of the mosque in Whiteman Road. But it isn't just a mosque, it's actually a cultural center, it's a home, it's a place that people can feel safe and it, irrespective of diversity, ethnicity, uh, religion or background, it was somewhere that was really, really like somebody coming to your home. And it's, it, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, um, it is such a, a melting pot as you say, in North London um, with different communities, but there's lots of very strong centres as well. Um, well. We'll talk a bit, I think, in a bit about what we're going through now. And obviously this is what, what's happened in the last year has changed community like nothing else in, in our lifetimes, I should think. Um, but um, even before the pandemic, what kind of work was the, uh, the, the society doing? I think you need to understand that um, when uh, my parents and his generation of, of uh, people came to England, they came together because sometimes probably they didn't have jobs or 
they had their families. In fact, like for, for myself, we were sent for three years later. Um, then when my mother came yeah. to England, we stayed with my grandparents for a few years until my parents could establish something here for us. Um, and uh, so, I, so I came going back to the olden days of 1962. So <laughs> you'll probably figure out how old I am as well. <laughs> um, and I came then with my, my two siblings. Um, and at that time, my, my father was already in dealing with things to do with the religion, if you like. And uh, so in 1983, we formed what was called the London Islamic Cultural Society. Prior to that, people were meeting in my father's home in Willoughby Road in Haringey. Oh, okay. um, that's our family home. And, and there were, we were establishing events. So if there was an event in the Islamic calendar, um, we would be observing it in my father's home because we were that small of a group to be able to do that. Uh, so Ramadan, we would meet together in the home and observe. And as that grew, we needed to look for something else. We worked so closely with the council, Haringey Council and its um, councillors. And I think we we just didn't fit into any of the groups because women were very much to the forefront without us as women, not so much perhaps me at that time, my mother um, and the sisters then, um, the husbands didn't come, the children were not out. So as a result mm. of, of their involvement, um, the, the whole organization grew, but our women were very much part of everything. They were, they were committee members, etc., of an organization that we formed in 1983. The work, the reason why we formed was because we needed somewhere, we needed something to be recognized um, for the group that we served. And, and what it was is that um, it allowed us to come together culturally religiously, socially. So in terms of fundraising, let's say for events, we would hold things like bazaars or dinners or barbecues. And, and, and that would be part of the fundraising for what we were doing. Mm. But my father's home, when it became too large, we started hiring out um, halls in the schools. And, and presumably um, it brought together other uh, people in Islam from other parts of the world as well so your family from Guyana was one particular group but there must have been others that came together because of the shared religion. Well initially when we first started in 1983 we only had two families from Mauritius. That right? Yeah separate hmm. to um, the people from Guyana and they became founder members of our organization so to this day when we did the trustee and the constitution initially uh, they were protected as members of or founders if you like of this group mm. um, and and so so at that time there were only a couple a handful as we grew and as people knew you were holding an event or that there were prayers being led by this group, then people began to join us. And now, Andre, if I could say, is skipping a little bit. Now we have 29 different languages spoken wow. at Wyman Road Mosque. So that's 29 different cultures. Uh, it's that, amazing. It's amazing. That is amazing. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a great thing to see, isn't it? And it's a sign of, of where London is. 
um, it, that must have been a gradual thing over the years. You must have suddenly seen different groups, different communities turning up each year. I think what it was is um, we bought our first centre, having started at my father's home and then using school halls, we bought our first centre in Parkview Road in Haringey, where the council allowed us to use that house as a place of worship um, for a limited period and that we would then move on. So once you open somewhere that is deemed to be a mosque, you cannot control the uh, ethnicity or the people who would attend. Mm. So as people began to know, they began to join us. And, and then eventually we, we outgrew that centre and we identified the synagogue in Whiteman Road. It was the Hornsey and Woodgreen Synagogue. Uh, and that's what we purchased in 1988. That is our home now. It's become our home and it still is. And uh, we're really, really, really happy and proud of the relationship we have with the Jewish community. In fact, about uh, two years ago, um, one of our Jewish sisters, she donated an olive tree to the mosque and we all had a planting ceremony there because they also have a link, link with us. And, and so we're really, really happy to build on that. That's great. And, and um, are, there, are there churches in the area as well with which are involved in a multi-faith movement? Well, um, so, so that was establishing our Whiteman Road uh, mosque and it went on in 2002 that we built the purpose-built mosque um, that you see there today. Um, each of these steps we took, because we were not funded by anyone, Andre, um, because I think to a certain extent, because we were not from the Middle East, we were not from uh, Pakistan or Bangladesh or one of those countries, and we spoke English. I think people saw us as being so different, you know, also. And our clothing was that of Western women, if you like, right. men. So we didn't wear the um, traditional um, shalwar and things like this, that, or hijabs even. We wore headscarves, but we didn't wear uh, those sorts of things. So when we came here and we established our centre, um, we did have a lot of objections from um, the community when they began joining us because they didn't want women to be there. And my father would then say, hold on a second, these women are all my wives and I want them here. And then nobody would argue with him. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. It was amazing. So we have, when we were first going to build the mosque, proper the purpose-built mosque the church opposite us which is a gospel church they actually objected to a mosque being built in the area but my father with his diplomacy and community cohesion went over spoke to the um sister who was in charge there um we actually appeared on tv and we were, i think we might have even been in your paper as well too um to say you know mosque is not allowed in this in in this country it's a christian country it's not for mosques you know uh, and um and he spoke to them and he reached out and we were able to build the mosque we got permission to build the mosque so there's a gospel church just opposite there's a greek church uh, further up and there's another church further down on whiteman road itself we are members of the haringey multi-faith forum 
multi-faith work has not been something that's been thought of just because you get into problems with say the Israel-Palestine things or anything like this. Multi-faith has always been part of our foundation because that's what we brought with us, you know. Um, we, we first of all see everyone as a hu hu humanity, in humanity they're humanitarians and, and everyone brings a different concept with them. So for instance, when we had our barbecues and bazaars, we would ask people to cook and bring some things people would bring different dishes from all of their cultures that we would all um, share. And just to go on to that point is our imams are from uh, Bangladesh, although born in the UK. Our caretaker is from Mauritius. Uh, the brothers who actually open and close that mosque are from Algeria. And then you've got us that we're from Guyana. So it's kind of a collective, collective. I'm so, so moved by the way that people have embraced us and the way that they want to join together to work with us and so we we do the same thing the food the gospel church has got a food bank across the road so we we help them with uh, food supplies as well and most recently because of this pandemic there's been more Muslim families who've been accessing the food banks. And so that was one of the things that we did recently where they reached out to us and asked for some halal foods, if you like. And, and so we're, we're working with them as well, um, as well as the Greek church. So I think everybody's been amazing in supporting each other. It's a great example. One of the lessons you learn as a journalist and as an editor that your father crossing the road to speak to the people in the church probably did more to change things than many other actions at the time. Because often, you know, we, we, as journalists, we have tense conversations, we have difficult stories, we have stories people don't want you to print, but it's almost always better if you speak to somebody in person or on the phone rather than exchanging passive aggressive messages and emails and letters which is so easy to do these days but showing somebody you're human makes all the difference doesn't it totally totally agree and and my father was a character I mean if I say to you we were shown or given an example we were given a role model and we were given a legacy to continue and for me as his daughter I walked with him for 40 years from the time he started doing this um he I walked with him to be able to achieve his goal, achieve his aims. And please, please God, he was able to see the mosque established, the new building with three floors so we could have a banqueting hall and we could have proper facilities for children in classrooms. Um, he was able to see that for five years before he passed away. And so he knows what we were doing. He trusted us to be able to continue the work that he showed us. And, and um, many people in the community know my dad either as dad, granddad, uncle. <laughs> you know, he was never this man or at the mosque or so. He was always, yes, I know, uncle. I know, I know this. In fact, when he passed away, the police closed off the roads to be able to allow his procession. And it out of out of every single corner, people were coming forward and saying, you know, I remember uncle, he helped me to get my university papers to go to university. Then another person would say something. There were so many different stories. I collated a lot of those stories because they mean so much. We as, I'm old now, okay? <laughs> but, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> 
won't but, have that. But that we, I have so many other youngsters with me. And I just feel if we communicate that message of humanitarian um, connections and community cohesion, then I don't see how our youngsters could go wrong. And, and the thing is, we, we, we include them in what we're doing. You know, so when you come to something at the mosque, you'll probably find some of the children or the youths or younger people are at the back of stalls uh, and things, or they're escorting people, or we have open days at the mosque and they would be escorting you around the mosque, telling you what we do, um, et cetera. So, so it's, we can do a lot more. Andre, I'm not saying that we've done everything. We can do so much more. And as time changes, you get different people that come out and bring different qualities as well too, to support you uh, and things. And, and it's really sad about the pandemic coming into our lives. However, during the pandemic, I have to say to you, we were running during Ramadan last year, uh, uh, not Zoom, it wasn't Zoom, it was something else. Um, I'm not any good with these IT things, okay? <laughs> I scream for my son. <laughs> but we ran, we ran a program every single day so that people who were not able to come to the mosque could, could uh, be witness and share with, with being at home, being away from each other, but still observing a bit of their thing. So we did, uh, we had the young, young people take part in some of the recitations, questions and answers. And they even, we even ran a competition, an art competition for them. So it was something to motivate and, and, and things. And it went really, really well, really well. How's the community, how's, how's the community doing at the moment? I think that everyone, but I think it's with every community. Um, I think everyone is really sad. They're really perhaps fed up. Um, you've, you've got a different thing here because when we open or when we reopen and there's so many guidelines to health and safety that we do follow and we're very strict in Whiteman Road, I must, I must say, you have to wear your mask and you must wear it properly. You have to use our sanitizer. And, and then you come into spaces that's provided for you, right? Some people, I must say, it's probably the brothers more than anyone else. They, they don't like to be told. They don't even want to recognize the uh, coronavirus. And most of all, a lot of them don't want to even give you their contact details. And you know, as well as I do, the contact details are so important because if something happened at the mosque, how can I contact you to say, listen, somebody has come down with this. You need to safeguard, go and get a test or you need to stay away from everyone else. So was um, it a challenge? It was, it was a, challenge. a challenge. It was really, really a challenge. But again, I have an amazing group of helpers. And everyone has, we have a checkpoint one, checkpoint two, checkpoint three, <laughs> uh, three. And with that goes like a little brief of what is expected of you at these points. And uh, I know that during the time of reopening after the first lockdown, the sisters had a lot of um, anger directed at them for taking the temperature or just giving the sanitizer or things like this. But, you know, somehow or the other, and with the help of, I have to say, with the help of God, they stuck to the rules. They followed what they were told. And we followed the government's guidelines. And 
Um, Haringey have been really good as well too because they hold regular meetings with us as community leaders and we have uh, Dr Will Marmaris who actually gives us um, public health advice so we follow those rules and we implement it and basically it came to the point where we would then say listen these are the rules and this is what you have to follow and if you don't want to follow it and they're always telling us about another mosque that doesn't do this that's okay you go to the other mosque you know, if you're happier, go to the other mosque. We want you to come here. But if you're going to come here, you need to. We've even had people say, well, what do you think this is, a five-star mosque? Or yes, if it's a five-star mosque and it protects even one of you, then I'm so sorry. I have a responsibility to protect all of you, all of my helpers and the community at large. So I, I'm not going to actually compromise on, on the basic rules of safety. So it was challenging. Um, and, and I guess in one sense, when the lockdowns happen, it gives us a bit of a break as well, Andre, because I know in this particular last lockdown, when we went into tier four, we decided to close the mosque because there were people in the community whose family had the virus, they didn't have it, and they think they can just come into the mosque as well. Only because of our knowledge that we knew the families had the virus, we could then say, no, 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 at the gate, sorry, you can't come in. And, and the increase in the um, community of the virus was great. So we decided when we went into tier four to close. Which must have been a difficult and heartbreaking decision, but given the facts, it, it the only one there by the sounds of it. How is the... Um, how are people coping with the grief and the loss? The, the thing that's really hard about a bereavement or the grief is that we're unable to support them personally. We can only talk to people on the phone or um, really on the phone or if they're doing things like Zoom or, or et cetera. Um, we run groups where we deal with some of this so for instance we still um send out and broadcast the jumma prayers on a friday we do a family circle on a sunday and and we've held different different uh, zoom meetings one to to deal with some of these items and also even going further to deal with the vaccination um, and we've had doctors and imams and people asking questions and, and so we've had those we will repeat that again and um, people are not are really finding it tough because in some cases it's a husband or a wife and that person's on their own they're not able to see us or to even get that comfort um, and but they also know that th that this is what it is a lot of people if it depends on your I guess your religious depth if I say that I think it's on based on your yeah. religious depth. You know, it's easy for me to say this is what Allah wishes or this is what God de decrees or so. If you don't have that commitment and belief, you're never going to understand that. You know, I can tell everybody this this was ordained and there's a better place. It's it, that this is nothing what we have here. It's 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 um we go through trials every single day here. There's a better life for us. 
but not everybody accepts that because you've lost someone but it's it's humanity isn't it it's being a human that you you feel the sense of loss you can't cope with it you know um and so so yes so in in terms of supporting people we've been dealing talking to them on the phone we've been arranging um where someone has had someone ill for a while like for instance last night we had someone who was on a life support machine and the family were talking to me um and the machine had to be turned off well it was a decision that was made and so you knew what was going to actually come god willing and that happened but it was about being with them talking with them it doesn't matter it's two yes. o'clock, three o'clock in the morning uh, and then taking it from that stage to what needs to happen next because then suddenly registration green car green papers and everything like this to release the body comes into play where are we going to bury them you know, where is their spaces, you know, and all of that. So, so you've got to take them through all of that. Uh, and then you come to the point where normally Muslims would bury straight away. You've suddenly got days where it's totally blocked and you can't actually get someone buried straight away. And it's about a dividing. Um, it's, a, it's, I would say it's like convincing people that it's out of our hands the delays and and that nobody's going to get sinned if you like for for some of these things that's happening now you know so so coping with the bereavement is just not one part it's a continuous part and then what we do is we check i divide up numbers of of people of families to our members and they would call every so often to be able to find out if everyone's doing well or how they're doing. Everyone's just waiting for us to be out, Andre, to be quite honest, and to be to just have some sense of normalities. But at the same time, they're not oblivious to the fact that we can't do this in a rush because we don't want to go into another lockdown. It must be very immediate for you a lot of what's happening it often strikes me you walk around London and it's not as quiet as it was a year ago but it or last year but it is fairly quiet um and it would be easy to not believe what's happening in the intensive care units and what's happening to lots of families because on the face of it it's like a quiet Sunday out there and at the paper we come across stories people get in touch we hear names and things but for you, I suppose you must be um, often speaking with families of people who are getting very ill or and dying um, directly. So it, there must be a reality to it. How have you found it? I think I found initially I was able to cope with it. And as lockdowns and periods like this have gone on, it's harder. It's, it's kind of like sometimes I'm lost for words of how to comfort someone. Words don't make they don't comfort, you know, I can't say, how, you know, you say, how are you? What do you expect? But it's a rhetorical question, right? But it's yeah. the only question that it comes out. Uh, and then, but words, I find myself, and I described this to the imam the other day, was I felt as though I, there's this bucket and it was half filled with water. And then gradually it's increased. That, that water level is increasing. And now suddenly I'm at the top where um, it's going to overflow. In terms of my emotions, 
those are the emotions and the way that I can describe it to you because I'm feeling the pain of everybody and I'm feeling the loss for everyone. And I know what it's like because when we lost my, my father, that was like, I know we had him for a long time, but he was our role model. He was the, you know, person who, who everything, we went to ask for everything. And, and uh, so now if somebody's husband, you know, there was a young lady who was early forties, her husband is, um, 52 he got ill very strong person and he died but her thoughts were I saw your dad and your mum and they had 62 66 years of marriage they were together I thought I would have that you know but we have got things like bereavement um groups that are running sessions that if somebody we could refer people to um and things I think I always fall back on my religion, Andre, if I'm honest. And although you may have moments of question, um, it's not a negative question. It's about you coping. And it's not questioning what I believe in. It's not questioning my religion. It's just about you're a human being and you sometimes come to the point where every day, you know, we've got some WhatsApp groups for the mosque, because that's even become more important to keep people informed of what's going on. And it's kind of like every day, I'm sending out a message to say, please make some prayers for this person. And then two days later, I might be saying, that person you prayed for has passed away. So it's kind of like, I really would like to not have to do that. But I have to do it because people there's a thing about collective prayer and knowing the strength that comes between a group of people who are thinking of you. And, 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 and when the, when the people who are suffering this see that other people are sending messages to them as well, it makes a bit, a a lot of difference and it gives them encouragement. And for you personally to stop that bucket from overflowing, you find a way through religion to, um, drain it into another bucket as it were and to, to to keep it at a reasonable level yes I th- I think um I think for all of us it's we've got to find a way whether it's friends or professional counseling or your religion or a, just a listening ear somewhere I think I think for me what it is is that when you're having these moments where you um perhaps question I have a wonderful group of people who I can talk to and without saying, oh, I feel this way, this way, I talk through scenarios. And then on the other hand, too, I'm really, really impressed with the way that people have been handling these things. They can't see their their relatives because they're in the hospital. They don't know what's going on. And the moment a doctor calls you to say that you can come to see them, you know it's bad right so I'm really really impressed with the way that people in the community have dealt with it and so then that gives me strength as well too you know I'm supporting but they are going through it Uh, and I take a lot of comfort from them as well too I have one particular person at our mosque who always gives me quotes and and gives you incentives and then I pass that on to everybody else um obviously there are lots of reasons for for hope at the moment and the vaccines are a um a strong one um are you 
do, do you think there's any issue getting the message of the vaccine out or um, do you think people are accepting of it? Okay, so I think I mentioned to you uh, earlier on about the working with Haringey. Our community has been totally supported, if you like, by Haringey Council. We know the councillors and we've been happy to work uh as part of community cohesion with the council and the work that we're doing as civic duties, etc. And so we started working with them um, in terms of getting the message through to our community. And like I was saying to you, we had the Zoom call to say about vaccines, to address the, the myths, if you like, of, of these vaccines and whether or not Muslims can take it, etc. So, so we did all of that. We had two doctors talking. We had the imams talking and answering questions. And on top of that, we've been working with the NHS to actually recommend and send people for the vaccine who fit into the criteria that's being operated now. So the people that we have in our community, I can then approach them and say, listen, did you think about the vaccine? Uh, it's your decision if you have it, but, you know, this is what, what, do you have any problems? Do you want to ask any questions or anything like this? And so we've sent forward people from the community, arranged it um, for the vaccine. We're working still with the vaccine centers to do that um, also. And we've established a really good connection with um, the doctors leading the vaccine center as well too. One of the really happy things that we did do was to send some food and snacks and a lunch break for the workers at the vaccine centers and to Northmid and to Whittington Hospital because we felt that they sometimes are forgotten and when they're so busy, you know, you know what the reason was when our community were going to get vaccinated they would come back and say to me how amazing the people were and what they were doing in this center. They were running around and, and not even time to have a glass of water. And so as a result of that, that's the reason why we sent drinks, water, snacks that they could just grab whilst they're doing their work. Um, also, so we're still pushing on our uh, social media um, groups. We're still pushing this um, need for the vaccine. You do have people who say no. You do have groups of people who say they don't believe that this is genuine. And, and, and also they, but you know, sometimes I look, Andre, at some of the information that's out there, the false information. And I looked at one the other day with Bill Gates and his historical things and whatever. And sometimes if you look at these things, you sometimes can actually believe it. Right. And if you've got no one else to steer you to say, ah, oh, but what about this? What about that? What about smallpox? What about diphtheria? What about all of these things? If we didn't do the vaccinations, then all of these things, tuberculosis is one of the main things. When people went to Hajj, they used to always come back with TB. Right. Because of vaccines and things like that, it's actually quelled a lot of those um, diseases so although we can't impose on someone to have it but we certainly can provide the message we have some really good imams who put forward that message for us for instance Ajmal Masroor he went along with his mother and he um, videoed the vaccination and then he we put it out in the two in two two languages so that his community Bengali community could listen 
as well as the English. One, he's got a status, if you like, of his position in the community. Yeah. And he's showing that his mother is is having this. And, and so that's what we're doing now. We're probably going to do a little leaflet of some sort showing our imams when it's their turn to get the vaccine and other key members in the community. We, I, I might even discuss, I work really closely with Rabbi Mason from the Muswa Hill Synagogue. And, a former guest on this podcast, yes, David Mason. Yeah. Yes, and and um, so we've had a really long connection with him. My father began that, I've continued, and um, we work for the homeless together. We go to the synagogue, they come to us. Uh, we've even done food for the homeless, etc. together. And we've even spent time for the Jewish women and Muslim women to get together and talk about their experiences and, and life, talk about what concerns us. But we can talk about things without it impacting anything else, you know. And, and sometimes it's really good to have comparative religion as well too it's really good what does yours say and what does mine say and and hold on a second that's exactly the same it's the same rumors the same gossip and yeah same things you know so so I've been we work really a lot with him and and so I might even say to him let us as faith leaders put out something that shows all of us collectively in a leaflet to show that we're we're having the vaccine as well well, well, we'll talk in it afterwards about um, what we might be able to do with the paper to help with that as well. Uh, before we um, finish today, obviously, as I said before, there, there, is, um, there is hope. We are, you know, we can see light at the end of, of this. Um, what are you looking forward to? Okay, so I'm thinking, I know the government in this last lockdown didn't lock mosques or places of worship however we didn't think it made sense to keep open and bring in people in especially with all those variants right so we have been closed since December okay I'm looking forward to being open again but I'm looking forward to that day that we could all collectively come together and we just roll call all the people and those loved ones who have left us and remember them because there are so many that, and we do this during Ramadan. Ramadan is coming, you know, in April, right? And so we're planning now what we're going to be doing. So I'm looking forward to that big event when I don't think we'll be able to hug each other for a very long time, but even if we saw each other, it would still mean something. I'm just looking forward to for my family and my grandchildren to be able to just be normal with them, you know, also and, and things. So uh, first of all, I think, as believers, we really do believe that there is an end, there will be an end to this. And you have to have faith that there will be, right? Um, and it's just a matter of time. It's a course we're going through. We're so far ahead from where we were last March in terms of the vaccine, right? And please God that that works. It's not something that's gonna go away immediately. Andre, but it's about uniting our community. Every single one of us, the multi-faith forum, counsellors, my community, the wider community, our churches near to us, everyone's looking forward to that day that we could even say, let's just close off Whiteman Road and let's have a big, big outdoor party. <laughs> well, that's a good place for us to end for today. Bibi Khan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so, so much. And all of you keep well.
Thank you so much to Bibby for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe and we'll be back again next week.